0: Amen. All right, so good morning again. I feel like a superhero, like I had a wardrobe change in the morning already. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And, and while you're all flipping there, turning there... Um, let me just say, or, or ask the, the, the blatantly obvious question here, or the answer to it should be obvious. Like, how good is it or was it that we just enjoyed a baptism in the life of our church? Like, how extremely good that is. And, and, and it's good uh, for a host of reasons. We planted this church, we established this church here in town. Uh, Just 11 months ago, less than a year ago, we started Sunday morning services last December and uh, Joseph today was the fifth individual that's been baptized in the life of our church in that amount of time and that's why we did this, right? It's, It's for no other reason than to see People come to Christ for them to grow in their faith, to for people to be baptized and learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so what we're asking for, what we're praying for, is for that to be a regular routine. We don't want five every year, we want five per week kind of a thing. So we ask that if you're a part of Anthem Church that you would pray for that in, in the life of this body. And that means that for us who are part of this church, for us to be actively sharing the gospel and inviting people to church and inviting people to small group and doing all the sorts of things that we need to do in order to be missional in our lives, just to see this great thing happen here. And, and while I'm talking about baptism real quick, one thing I did forget to do while I was there um, Usually when we do a baptism, you know, we talk about the person and what it means and, and who they think and so forth. Uh, but baptism isn't only about that individual. Actually, baptism is about the church itself. It's, it's something that's a big part of the church. And something that I just have written down here that I like that we do when we do a baptism is that I actually ask you who are Anthem Church, you who are Anthem church, do you commit to helping Joseph, who we just baptized, to grow in the faith that he has professed and if you're part of anthem church you would say yes "Yes," if that is in fact the desire of your heart to help him uh to do such a thing but i just just to show that baptism isn't an individual thing it is a body thing it is a church ordinance given by god to be done in the local body and it's it's there's a mutual thing happening there it's not him it's us Okay, so it's a good thing that we celebrate baptism, that we observe it. It's not only good, though, I would say that it's appropriate this morning. It is particularly fitting that we observed a baptism today. Baptism is all about knowing. It is all about knowing Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 3, he's praying to God the Father, and and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, in that verse, Jesus defines what it means to be a Christian, and he defines it by knowing God, by knowing the Father, and by knowing Jesus Christ, the Son. So, Knowing is all about knowing God personally. Knowing the one and only true living God. Knowing Him personally. And knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, personally. It's having a relationship with him. And so what does it mean to know God? It means to know the love of God. It means to know the grace of God. It means to know the compassion of God. What does it mean to know Jesus? It means to know eternal life, which is what he tells us in that verse. To know. And know here doesn't mean some kind of intellectual, academic, cerebral kind of exercise, Though it does involve the mind clearly, it's talking about a grasping. It is an intimate knowledge. It is a a knowing at the heart level kind of a knowing that is happening there. So what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know Jesus? It means that you know eternal life. And therefore, you know that when your days on earth come to an end, that your days in heaven will begin. That there is something that is guaranteed through faith in Jesus Christ by the very promise of God. And so what we observed this morning, we observed someone who has come to know God, who's come to know Jesus, and who's come to know eternal life. Baptism symbolizes life. It symbolizes new life, spiritual life. And uh, this is the, the unpopular sentiment of the day, but the reality is that we are born into this world sinners, not only separated from God, but there's, there's antagonistic toward God so that there's a separation and then some against God. There is this desire for us to not listen to him, not want to obey him, not want to be a part of who he is and what he's doing. Uh, yet God mercifully has made a way for us. Like, I mean, that's, that's the gospel. It's called good news for a reason, right? That God, in mercy and grace and kindness and compassion, in patience, just extends himself, his love, righteousness and goodness toward us. And he does it through his son. He does it through the gospel message. And then all who place their faith in Jesus who commit their lives over to him so they yield their lives over to him so they become a follower a disciple of Christ so I always say it's not only believing it's believing to the point of following that's biblical faith so the person who places their faith in Jesus they receive eternal life and so what that means is they have come to know God they have come to know Jesus they have come to know eternal life they know and that is what baptism represents I know. And that's why I say it's fitting this morning that we had a baptism because we're concluding this sermon series entitled, I Know. And what we've been wrestling with or trying to discuss during the series is the most important question that we will ever ask or answer. And that is, how do I know that I am in right relationship with God? How do I know that? How do I know that I've experienced His grace? How do I know that I've been forgiven? How do I know? How do I know that? How do I know that when my days on earth come to an end, my days in heaven will begin? How do I know? Is it even possible to know? Or is it just kind of wishful thinking? I cross my fingers and I hope so. Like, can, can we know? And the wonderful answer that Scripture very clearly provides is that we can know. We can know that we know that we know definitively 100% without a doubt, without assurance. So we don't have to settle for fear or for worry. We don't have to settle for that. We can know beyond a shout of a doubt that we are, in fact, in right relationship with God, with his son, Jesus Christ, and we have inherited eternal life. We can absolutely know that without any question. Now, here's the question, though. But how do I know that I know? That's really the tricky part. So you're telling me, Rick, that I can know, but how? By what means? Well, I'm glad you're asking those questions. Because we'll have tried, or I believe Scripture will, in fact, provide an answer to that. And I'll just go ahead and answer it for you right now. We know that we are in right relationship with God if spiritual fruit is being produced in our lives. What is spiritual fruit? That's what we're getting into this morning in Matthew chapter 13. Um, And what we're going to do, we're going to read the first eight verses all at once. And again, we're answering the question, how do I know that I have eternal life? I'm saying that it's if spiritual fruit is being produced in our lives, and this text is going to help us to understand what that means. So let's start in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew, grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So what Jesus is doing here, he's teaching through a parable. And a parable is a short allegorical story that uses something from this world to point or to teach us something that is spiritual in nature. So Jesus is using a farming illustration, agricultural language that we should know really well around here, right, with all our backup and cotton, and all that good stuff, right, that we should know this stuff, and he's using an illustration from this world to point to something that is spiritual in nature, and what is the point of the parable is to distinguish between those who are in right relationship with God from those who are not. That's the point of of this parable. To distinguish those who are in right relationship with God from those who are not. And so then the point to us is, as we go through this text, as we go through this this story, this parable, what we need to do is see who it is that we are in the story. Because there's four individuals that are mentioned here. That fall basically into two buckets. But there's four individuals. And as we go through this, it's like, who am I in this story? Which one best describes you? So it really requires a bit of courage. It requires a bit of honesty and a lot of humility. So just be honest with yourself. As we go through this, who are you in this? Who are you in this? Now, I will admit that uh, the parables are one of the things that absolutely scare me as a pastor and as a teacher to teach because some of them are straight up tricky and very difficult. All right, it's, it's like the book of Revelation is pretty tough, too. I bit it up there. But fortunately, this is one that Jesus tells us the meaning of the whole thing. So I'm grateful for that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to read Jesus' explanation of those verses that we just read. So verses 18 through 23. Let's read them all together. Here then, the parable of the sower. So Jesus is describing what he just meant. He's explaining it to his disciples because the disciples asked him, what's the deal with what you just said? So he says, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes down and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. Verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but he care but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another, sixty. And in another 30. So let's, let's just unpack Jesus' explanation of the parable here. So in verse 19, Jesus says that the seed, that seed that is sown, is the word of the God's kingdom. The word of God's kingdom, which is the same thing as to say the word of God, which is the same thing as to say the truth that God has revealed to us. That's the seed. It is the truth that God has revealed. So so what is the truth that God has revealed? Well, first of all, the truth is what God has revealed to us about himself. That's part of the truth. That's part of the seed. So what has God revealed to us about himself? He is all powerful creator who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, simply by the word of his power. That's the truth about who God is. And what else does the Scripture tell us? What, what else has God revealed to us about himself? Well, he is the all-wise God who rules over all of existence without rival. He is the all-glorious king who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. That's who God is. He is the all-righteous judge who presides over everything. That's the truth about who God is. That's part of the seed. But the seed isn't just the truth about who God is. The seed is also the truth about who we are as individuals. So who are we? We are people, men and women, made in the image of God, created to reflect the very character of God himself. Created to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our soul. Created to worship him and him alone, to serve him and serve him alone, to live for his glory. That's who we are. Unfortunately, we fail from grace. In the Garden of Eden, we sinned against God. We rebelled against His purposes. And now that sin has been passed on to the rest of us. We have inherited that sin. So that now we are born into this world spiritually dead. We're born sinners. We're born with a, with a sinful status before God and a sinful predisposition against God. That is who we are. And if nothing changes on a collision course with the God who is all-powerful, all-righteous, all-holy. So the seed is the truth about God. It's the truth about who we are, but there's another truth. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That God in love is enthroned in heaven and He looks down on our dilemma and He Himself comes down to earth he runs toward us to deliver us out of captivity out of the prison of our sins uh, to to remove the harness the yoke of burdens and brokenness and deceitfulness and malice and all of that to break and shatter the chains to free us from all that that's the gospel that god loved us to rescue us out of this dominion of darkness that we that we live in And that's when Jesus comes down and he lives the sinless life, the one that we should live, but we fail to do so. He was tempted in every way, yet remained sinless. And at the end of his days on earth, he was nailed to a cross. And on that cross, all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame was placed on him. And there he bore it and he took that. He took that which we deserve, the wrath and the punishment. So he, he appeased the wrath of God. He shielded us from the wrath of God. He was the propitiation of our sin. He removed it. He removed it. He took it away. He kicked it out of existence as far as the east is from the west. That's the cross. And now so whosoever believes in him Right? That he died and that he was raised on the third day. Because we don't want to leave Jesus bloody on the cross and we don't want to leave him buried in the grave. He was raised from the grave. And so whoever so believes that Jesus died on your behalf, he took your sin willingly and gladly. And that he died as a result and that he was raised to life. Whoever believes in that and gives their life to him, they are forgiven. And they receive eternal life. That is The gospel. And so all those things together are the seed. That's the truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about who we are, the truth about God's love and mercy to rescue us out of our plight. That's the seed. That's the truth. And so what Jesus is doing in verse 19 or what he tells us in verse 19 is that the seed, that truth, that word of God, the word of God's kingdom has to be not only heard, but it has to be also what? Understood. It has to be both heard and it has to be understood. The person, the first example, the first individual in this parable is a person who who only hears the word, They only hear the gospel, but they don't comprehend it. And Jesus makes an analogy between that person and the seed that falls on the path. Okay? The person who only hears but doesn't understand is analogous to a person, to to the seed that falls on the path. What is a path? A path is an area that's been trampled, right? Beat down, hardened, correct? The surface is impenetrable to seed anyway. So the seed just sits on top. It can't do anything. It can't go into the soul because it's so hard. It's so it's so hardened. And so what the the point here is that the person who is like the path has a hardened heart. There is a veneer over their heart that keeps the message, everything that I like for instance, everything I just said, keeping it from penetrating into their heart like so the person can hear it with their physical ears but there's not a hearing in their innermost being there's a disconnect between between the two there so they don't really grasp it Uh, and it's it's not necessarily that they are completely and have an animosity against it now some people do but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're an outward adamant boisterous opposition to it i don't want to hear it i hate jesus it doesn't even mean that necessarily what it means a person can actually hear that everything i just shared and go man that sounds really good i want that the love of god that that sounds like a good thing forgiveness man heaven that that sounds pretty good actually hear it and on some level say man if i accepted it man i think things might be better but then it doesn't go anywhere it stops there and that's the path. That's this path that's being described. It's, it's hardened. I've, I've shared the gospel with many people, and I've run into many individuals that are like this, where you share it, and they, they, it, to me, from my standpoint, it feels like they're on the verge of crossing over, and they're like, yeah, maybe one day I'll think about it. Sounds good. I mean, I've even gotten responses like that. I should. I should. Huh. And, and quite honestly, and I don't, I don't mean to be this to be uh, condescending, but it's, it's a bit irrational. It's, it's illogical to be, to start understanding it like, like in your head, but and see the benefit of it and say, no, nah, I'm not going to go that way, maybe later. Like it doesn't even really make sense. It just goes to show that it's a heart thing that's happening there. So the, the message in that situation sits on top of the person's heart, like it sits on top of the path. But it doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there. And just like in the parable where, where these birds swooped in and snatched it away, what Jesus says is that if that message doesn't go into the heart, the evil one, which is the devil, literally sweeps in and snatches it away before it ever has any chance to do anything. Which is a scary thought, which is always like when we hear the message, there, there has to be this angst to grab it, to, to, to grasp it. To take it into ourselves and not wait, not wait any any longer. So, in verse twenty, what Jesus does. So, this is the second example I'm moving to. The second person that Jesus describes as in in the parable. In verse twenty, Jesus compares the seed sown on rocky ground to a person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. So this person hears. This story of God's love. They hear that there is grace that is freely given. That there is a Messiah who willingly gave his life for you. They hear of the bliss and the perfection of heaven. And they actually have a reaction to It's what it tells us in the text. They, they actually react with a certain happy enthusiasm towards it. It's what it tells us there in the text. It tells us that they immediately receive it with joy. So there is an initial joyful, emotional reaction to the gospel, to this seed of truth. But folks, that's all it is. It's just an emotional reaction. They have this response, but there's not a true grasping of the truth. And... When, uh, when Jesus there refers to the seed that fell on rocky soil, he doesn't mean ground that has rocks in it. He's talking about bedrock. It's what he means. There's bedrock, maybe an inch or two of soil there, but there's nothing underneath that. So the seed cannot grow roots. There's nowhere for it to go. It's the same thing here. This individual, it's their heart is like bedrock. There's maybe a little bit of soil, but the truth cannot anchor itself to the heart. Now, some of you have grown up in church. Some of you may not have, depending on what tradition you grew up in, I'm going to describe a scenario that some of you may be familiar with. Some of us grew up in a certain type of church in which every Sunday morning at the very end, there's an altar call. And man, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it where people get up and they're broken weeping, crying, all of it. They walk up, they make their profession in Jesus and all this, and the church is rejoicing and wonderful. And right afterwards, man, it seems like, oh, sweet, good deal. They're serving in the church. They're going to Sunday school, yada, yada, yada. A little while later, you don't hear from them ever again. Why? Because all that they had was an emotional, cathartic, spiritual experience that didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything. Their emotions were real, but their connection with God was not real because it did not anchor itself in the heart. There was no grasping that happened there. I want to say some things here. It may be difficult for some, but anyway. Christianity is a faith, please hear me, Christianity is a faith that does, in fact, involve our hearts and our emotions. But it is, first and foremost, a faith that involves our mind and our thinking. I'm not saying that the heart is not involved. I am not saying that the emotions are not involved. What I'm saying is that, first and foremost, our mind and our thinking are involved. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Isaiah 118. God is speaking and God says, come now, let us reason together. Isaiah 118 come now, let us reason together. It involves the heart. It involves the emotions. But only in so far as our mind and our thinking is involved. Let me, uh, let me give you the, the danger. Of if, if it's not that way, the danger is that then we are at the whim of our emotions. We can get swept up pretty quickly in all sorts of emotions. Now, Emotions can be good, and emotions can be rightly motivated, but emotions can lie to us and often mislead us. So I, if, forgive me if I've told you this story before, but it's one of my favorites, and I, just, I like picking on my friend Chris. So 13 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, so we're roughly 30, a little less, and Chris is married got a child or two, and he calls me up one day, hey, how's it going? I say, hey, what's up, man? And he's like, oh, yeah, his wife's out of town, kids are out of town. I said, what are you going to do? He said, like, oh, I'm going to go rent a movie. Oh, like, what are you going to watch? What are you going to rent? And he's like, Black Hawk Down. It had just come out on, I don't even know if it's DVD. It might have been VHS. I don't even know. And so, it, so he's going to rent it. And I had already seen it, which if guys awesome movie, right? So, but I him, no, you don't want to watch it. It's trash. It's not any good. It's terrible. The plot's terrible. The action's bad. You don't want to watch it. He's like, really? I've heard really good things. No, no, don't waste your time. And so, so he said, well, what should I rent? I said, go rent the Mothman Prophecies. Now, Mothman Prophecies is one of the scariest movies I have ever seen. <laughs> and I've got to the point now where I don't recommend Christians watch scary movies. That's for another day. Anyway, back to, I digress back, so at that moment, I'd watch it, one of the scariest movies I had ever seen, and so me knowing Chris, and how he is, I go watch, what's it about, now, I'm not even going to tell you, man, it's got a good little twist at the end, you'll love it, so I'm, I'm thinking, this is funny, the next day, he calls, and I see the phone light up, and I'm like, I'm not answering, and he leaves me a choice, a choicey kind of a, uh, a message, but in the message, he says, Rick, I'm 30 years old, I'm married, I have children, I had to sleep with the lights on last night, Why? Why did a 30-year-old have to sleep with the lights on? He was scared. He knows monsters aren't real. He knows they are not any under his bed. But his emotions don't know the difference between what is true and what is false. And our emotions can mislead us. So the only way for us to trust emotions if they are rooted in the truth about who God is, rooted in the gospel, rooted in the word of God. Otherwise, we're at the whim of emotionalism and experiences and sentimentality. The, the same can be said for love. Love is tricky. You can fall in love with the worst of people for no reason. Everything is saying the opposite, and, you're marri- and you, you can be married and fall in love with someone else. That's not right. I would say that's not love. That's something else, right? So our emotions can lie to you. So we have to be extremely, extremely careful with relying on them. And that's what Jesus is saying in the parable. This person, they react with joy, yay, ecstatic over the gospel, but it's not real to them. They're just happy that they heard something that was nice. Maybe they're beat up. The world has beat them up a bit. Something, it kind of, it scratched an itch, but it didn't really address the issue. So it got them excited for a little while. And so despite all the fanfare and the joy, it proves only to be temporary. And we've seen this often in the life of the church. It becomes temporary. It never takes root because what happened was superficial. Had, there was no depth to it. It wasn't concrete. What they proved to be is a, is a uh, what's it called, fair weather fan. You know what I'm saying? Yay, I'm a Dallas fan. Let them lose two games. Won't hear from them anymore, <laughs> right? It's just how it is. Fair weather. Same thing with Carolina or State fans. Same thing, right? They come out of the woodwork when things are going well. And then all of a sudden, when things aren't well, the, all of a sudden they're not wearing the hat anymore, and they're not posting on Facebook anymore. So this is what's happening here. This individual, the world has come in, is causing some strife, causing some troubles. That's what happens when you align yourself on Jesus' side. Persecution comes, trials and sufferings come, comes that way, and then next thing, the the heat gets turned up, and the person who is not rooted in it says, I'm going to step out of the way. It actually tells us in the text that they fall away, and the word fall away there actually means offended. They become, they take offense, They are taken back by the very fact that if I follow Jesus, these bad things are going to happen to me, so I'm going to slip aside. And that is the complete opposite of someone who actually has a relationship with God. True believers persevere to the end. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing doing evil deeds, He, talking about Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. True believers make it to the end. You know, 1 John chapter 2 warns about those who were, they were with us, but they're no longer with us because they were never of us. True believers, and just so that there's no mistake, it is not because our faith is so strong. It is because God is so strong and He preserves us in our faith. He is the one who seals us. He is the one that finishes and completes the work that He began in us. So, believers don't jump ship. We don't quit. We don't defect. Those that do are not in right relationship with God. All right, the next example, verse 22. Jesus compares a person to the seed that is sown among thorns. So like the others before, they hear the gospel, they hear the truth, but it's like a faint hearing of it. Really, the gospel and the truth is just kind of background noise. To them? Because there's something that is much louder in their ear. And according to this verse, what is loudest in their ear are the concerns of the world, things of this world. Their fear, their worry, their stress, their angst, way more or way louder in their ear than the truth about God, the truth about who they are and the truth about the gospel. OK, here, what is really loud in their ear is money, luxury, stuff toys possessions 401ks bank accounts that's what's loudest the pursuit of those things so in this individual is consumed by the here and now their gaze is on the earthly and the temporary rather than on the heavenly and the eternal that's this person So when they hear this gospel of truth, before the gospel of truth can remove their fear, their worry, their angst, and their stress, the fear, the worry, the angst, and the stress comes in and chokes it out. For this person, like before the seed could take root and they can come to see that there is infinite treasures in Christ that in Him are all the riches that we would ever want to have, before we have a chance for that, the worldly stuff comes in and chokes it out. That's this example, the third one. So, the first three examples in the parable are individuals that are not in right relationship with God. The, the truth of God has not penetrated their heart. They've heard it, they haven't understood it. Whatever emotional experience they've had is just sentiment. It's just sentiment is all it is, shallow sentiment. There's not a true application of persevering faith in the gospel. It's missing. And whatever chance they had to embrace the goodness of God got choked out by the lesser things of this world. That's the first three. And then we come to an example of the person who is in right relationship with God, and that's in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. What distinguishes this person from the other three? And there's two things, right? They not only heard, but they understood. And because they understood, they produced fruit. So what does it mean to understand the truth? So if it's more than hearing, right? It's more than hearing. Understanding the gospel is way more than regurgitating the facts of the gospel. Like many, many people can do that. Just simply spout off the, the facts, information about the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's not that. There has to be a reasoning through it to the point of beginning to comprehend it. Not that we will ever fully grasp it because we will be in heaven for a million years and barely begin to understand the greatness and the goodness and the, the enormity of the goodness of God as given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, But there has to be a reasoning through it, like our brain is massaging it into place where we begin to comprehend it more and more. So that's what it means to understand. It also means to apprehend it, to apprehend the truth of God. What does it mean to apprehend something? Grab it. It means to take it into custody. It's taking it in, like locking it inside your soul. So there's a grabbing, a grasping of it, and then understanding it means acting on it. Acting on it. That's why I always say that in the Bible, faith is, doesn't mean simply believing. It means believing to the point of submitting. It is active faith. It follows. It yields. It goes forward. It doesn't sit still. It's not static. It's not passive. It moves into it. leans into the very object of the faith, which in this case is Jesus Christ himself. So that's what it means to, to believe and, and to have faith. That's what it means to understand There is an effervescence that happens inside a believer, like Alka-Seltzer. You don't drop an Alka-Seltzer in water and nothing happens, right? It fizzes. It effervesces. That's what the gospel does in the heart of a believer. It effervesces. It gets bubbly, right? The bubbly, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Thank you. It gives life to our soul. It quickens our mind. It livens our heart. It changes us. It alters us. And that's where the spiritual fruit comes into play. What, you know, individuals who've experienced the grace of God, they bear fruit. In this text, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how much. Some 100, some 60, some 30. It's not if, it's how much. It's how much fruit. The one who's genuinely experienced the grace of God, they will bear fruit. Their, their lives will produce something different. They will be qualifi- qualif- qualifiably different than everyone else, quantitatively different as well. So spiritual fruit, this might be worth writing down. Spiritual fruit is the indispensable test of genuine discipleship. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you're in right relationship with God? Is there spiritual fruit being produced in your life that is the genuine test of it jesus said in john fifteen eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples the spiritual fruit doesn't make us christian it just shows that we are you understand the difference there And so when we see this fruit being produced in our lives, we can actually begin to have assurance that, in fact, we have received the grace of God, that we've been forgiven of our lives, that we do know eternal life. If there's no fruit in our lives, there is cause for worry. And I won't sugarcoat it. There is cause for concern, eternal concern. If there's no demonstrative, visible, tangible difference in my life, then it's time to do some evaluating. It's time to see whether I'm in fact in right relationship with the Lord himself. So what is fruit? What is the spiritual fruit that we've been mentioning all morning? It's Galatians by by 5.22. Fru- but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who does that sound like? Sunday school answer time, right? Sounds like Jesus. So what is spiritual fruit? It's becoming more like Jesus. You know, and and the Bible does not give us a to-do list. I I absolutely hate that there's been this stream of thought within Christianity that the Bible is just a bunch of to-dos. Do this, don't do that. Man, I read the Bible. I don't read that at all. When I read the Bible, I say be like Jesus. It's a to-be list. It's Galatians 5.22. Be like Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Be conform to his character. Be sanctified. Grow in holiness. Right? Follow his examples. What does Jesus do? Do that. How did he react? React that way. Right? What was his mood? Have that mood. What was his disposition? What was his predisposition? Have that. What was his perception? Perception. Embrace that. Adopt that. Conform to that. Be like Jesus himself. And what does that look like? And I mean, we could spend hours, hours, days talking about what it actually looks like to be like Jesus, to look like Jesus, for that to be real spiritual fruit in our lives. And I'll just list a few here. It means being a peacemaker. Folks, a peacemaker is not a pacifist, a peacemaker is a fighter. For there to be peace, someone's got to make it. It assumes that there's conflict, and it's not conflict avoidance, like there's a problem over there and I'm heading this way. That's not peacemaking. Peacemakers run toward the problem and fix it. That's a peacemaker. Not a pacifist, but a fighter. The opposite is, is conflict avoidance. There's a problem over here, a problem I'm going to ignore, a problem that needs addressing, but you know what? I, it's just too messy and dirty. I'm going to go this way because it's just easier that way. That's, that's sin. That's not, that's not at all like Jesus. Jesus ran toward conflict. He left heaven and came to earth, the capital of conflict, to fix it. To make peace between us and God, that is a peacemaker. So you have a relationship that needs reconciliation, run at it and make it right. That's fruit. That's fruit. What else does it look like? It's, It's loving someone when they are terribly unlovable. And loving doesn't mean, hey, let's agree to disagree. You go over there, you go over here. I'm going to take my toys over here. You take your toys over there, and, and you're just, it's not going to interact. That is not love. That is the opposite of love. Love requires proximity and closeness. It means extending grace and forgiveness. No matter how many times that person wrongs you, that's fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It means humility and meekness rather than arrogance and pride. It means patience rather than anger. It means selflessness, charity, and generosity instead of selfishness and jealousy and greed. That's all fruit. It's just being like Christ. Like, read the Gospels. What what was his demeanor? What was his character like? Read that and conform to that. That's the spiritual fruit. At the end of the day, it's simple obedience. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's just simple obedience. What does the Word of God say? Do it. It's a humility. It's a humbling of ourselves, right? That's not what I want to do, Lord, but you've asked me to, and in love and in gratitude to you, I will abide by that. That's that spiritual fruit. That's what it looks like. It is simply following and imitating Jesus. So, here are the hard questions: Has the gospel transformed your character? Is the truth of God sanctifying you and making you more like Jesus? Are you more like him today than you were last week, last month, last year? Is your mood, your attitude, your disposition, all of it, is it more Christ-like today than 10 years ago? Is Is patience growing? Is love growing? Is grace growing? If the answer is yes, Amen, praise God, you know that you're in right relationship with Christ. If the answer is no, then it's one of two things. One, there's never been a moment where you've definitively placed your faith in Jesus. Or two, you're not cultivating in yourself that which would allow for the fruit to be born. If it's step one, or if it's the first one, then step one is accepting the gospel first and foremost, right? Starting there. Nothing else happens until there is a yielding to the love of God as given to us through Jesus Christ. It begins there. There's nowhere else to go. It starts there. And from then on, when we move on from there, it's, we are cultivating in ourselves that which would foster spiritual fruit. You know, if someone is, has a, a pecan tree, farm or apple tree farm or whatever, they have to cultivate it, right? They have to make sure that the tree gets enough water, that the soil has enough nutrients, that uh, the tree requires a certain amount of daylight. It requires carbon dioxide. It requires all these things that are absolutely necessary for this tree to produce fruit, right? Spiritually, it's the same way with us. There's no difference. There has to be something cultivated in it so that we get the right nutrients we get the right exposure to the sun, S-O-N, right? It requires that we, we get all the things that we need in order for the fruit to happen. So how do we do that? Bible study. And when I say Bible study, I don't mean glancing over Scripture. I mean meditating on it, reading it richly and deeply, hovering over it, like letting it absorb into your, into your thinking and into your heart Spending time in God's Word. It it requires biblical and theological training over time, like growing in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Taking the time to do so. And so we set up small groups, our A-teams. We don't have Sunday school here. We have small groups that meet during the week. Why? To try to give some help to us to spend time in the Word and to learn it and to grow in it. And in, in the part of small groups is something else that needs to be cultivated, and that is genuine Christian community. Like, we're not meant to live as islands unto ourselves, but we're part of a body. Like, the, like if you take a branch and you rip it off the tree trunk, is it going to produce any, any fruit? No, like, it, everyone has to be grafted, everyone's grafted in together. It's John 15, like, the, whole, the, the, the vine. Like, we're part of one another, and so we're not going to produce fruit out there as a lone wolf. It just doesn't happen. Right, And what else does it require? It requires praying, spending time with God, bringing our petitions to him, being honest with him, asking for his help, humbling ourselves before him. It's serving, you know, serving here at church. We need help on Sunday mornings. We need help this week coming into the building. we got some really cool projects coming up this week. It's serving, going on Haiti with us next summer. It's whatever needs to be done. It's not just at church, but at the food pantry, at Andrew Elementary School that we try to help out at. Wherever it is that there's a need, it's helping. It's helping your neighbors. It's serving. We serve God by serving, by serving others. It's singing and praising God. I mean, that, that, that's how we cultivate spiritual fruit in it. Actually raising our voices joyfully up to the Lord that cultivates fruit in us and it's giving generously to the church and giving generously to the gospel, giving to the needy and those who need help. This sounds very much like a sermon series that we did earlier this year called Freedom, and we spent 12 weeks talking about the spiritual disciplines. And as we approach the end of the year, it's kind of nice to bookmark it a little bit. How can I know that I'm in right relationship with God? if my life yields fruit? What if my life isn't yielding fruit? Maybe it's because I've never accepted Jesus. It starts there. But if I have and there's no fruit, maybe I'm not practicing the spiritual disciplines the way that I should. Cultivate it. Foster it. Bear the fruit. I'm going to ask everyone to just bow your heads and close your eyes and give you a moment just to reflect where you are. And in a minute, the praise team will lead us in a final song. And there's just a couple of questions worth asking and answering. And that is, do you know beyond a shout of a doubt that you are, in fact, in right relationship with God? Have you experienced His grace and forgiveness? If not, this can be the moment right now where you embrace it for the first time. Decisively and wholeheartedly. Or maybe the issue is that you're not producing a hundredfold or 60 or 30. Maybe it's five or one or, or maybe very, or not even that, but you have placed your faith in Jesus, but you're not doing the other things that would bring about the fruit in your life. So repent and ask for God's help. Which of those areas do you need to make a change in? What character attributes of Jesus are lacking in your life? And ask for God to help you to grow in those areas. Lord, Father, we praise you this morning for the truth of your word, for its conviction, Lord, and I ask that you would do a work with it this morning in all of our hearts, that it would penetrate us, that it would change us, Lord, I pray that we would be more like your son, Jesus, every moment of our days. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be real to us, that our hearts would embrace it, Lord, that it, it would alter every minute detail of our being. Lord, I, I pray for anyone in the room who's not sure that they're in right relationship with you, Lord. I pray that you would knock on their heart, that they would open the door. those in the room who do have a relationship with you Lord but who struggle knowing I pray that you would comfort their hearts Lord I ask that we all would walk out of this room saying I know I know I know that I'm in right relationship with you and that when my days on earth come to an end that my days in heaven will begin Lord may everyone in this room know your love that never ceases and never ends. And when all other things end, Lord, it is the one thing that remains, your love. In Jesus' name, amen.